You can open in your Bible if you have one to Joshua chapter 11. I see it's in the bulletin. So I think I can read that small print and uh, we'll read it together. Joshua 11, verse 1, hear the word of God. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, and what he heard about was what happened in chapter 10, which is in the south of the promised land, the south of Canaan, Joshua and the Israelites had completely wiped out all the southern kings. So now they've got their eyes turned to the north. And so when he heard about that, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshvath, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains in the Arabah, south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Parasites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And all these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Moron to fight against Israel. And the Lord Yahweh said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel slain. You are to hamstring their horses and, and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord Yahweh gave them into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Misraphath, Maim, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. And Joshua did to them as Yahweh had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. And Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. And everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed. And he burned up Hazor itself. And Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. And he totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the other cities built on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. And the Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. And as Yahweh commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. And he left nothing undone of all that Yahweh commanded Moses. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Belgad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. And Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Verse 23. So Joshua took the entire land just as Yahweh had directed Moses. And he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And then the land had rest from war. So the book of Joshua is the story of Israel entering and, and then possessing the promised land. And as you read this story, you realize that it was never easy it was real war. It was hard work. And yet with this battle here in Joshua 11, Joshua and company are done with the initial conquest. It, it took them a long time, and yet they have established permanency over the land. So I picked this passage because I think in many ways your church is at the same place. You, you've got a piece of land that you're trying to establish permanency on. You have, you have a, a, a established 
You have established some, tempor- some permanency in this community in Kennesaw and Ackworth. You're here. You're waging kingdom warfare. And, I, and so in many ways, they're at the same place that you're at. What's next? How do you get really permanent? It's hard work. And, and I picked this passage because it's really violent. And the kingdom battle is violent. The gospel kills people, right? You know that, right? Just not with blood. It kills off the old self. And then brings the, the resurrection of the Holy Spirit to bring the new self. It's a violent thing. You destroy people's old worldviews and their old ways. And you bring forth the glorious new in the gospel and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think there's a couple lessons for us here this morning. In fact, I have three points. And the first point is, is that kingdom warfare has proper weapons. Now, now King Jabin and his buddies are, are reacting to all the things that they'd heard coming from the south, that God and Israel are on a roll and they're, and they're impossible to stop. So the question is, will these kings submit themselves to God and receive grace, or are they going to harden themselves in resolve and seek to fight the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? It's the same choice that everyone on the planet has. Receive grace, or fight grace and seek your own way. So Jabin chooses to fight, so God's people are going to fight as well, even against overwhelming odds. As, as we read in the story, he's, he's plucked out every warrior from every surrounding nation and kingdom and village and people. It's a huge army. Uh, first century Jewish historian Josephus says there were 300,000 foot soldiers and 20,000 chariots. Now that's way bigger than Israel's army of just 600 batteries and no chariots. I couldn't help but think as I was reading this passage, I, I, I was thinking about the vast armies of orcs that you see in, in the Lord of the Rings. You know, in that story, the humans were always outmatched and outgunned. At Helm's Deep, there were 10,000 orcs versus just a few hundred men and elves. And, and at the Battle of the White City, there were not only thousands of, of orcs and orc kind, there were also huge trolls. And, and you remember the humongous oliphants that, that look like elephants, but they're 10 or 20 times bigger. And they're crushing everything in their path, and they're carrying warriors on their backs. And, and leading that army from hell were the nine ring wraiths who control the battle from the air, riding on their, their fell beasts, those flying dinosaurs who feed on, on men's flesh. And, and then there's the final battle at Mordor where the good guys are completely surrounded by thousands of bad guys and just a few hundred good guys. And in each case, the battle is won by unusual power from outside the battle itself. And the final battle is won by two little halflings, two simple hobbits named Frodo and Samwise. And they saved all of Middle Earth. I have three sons. And I've prayed regularly for my son either to be Sam who would help somebody or to have a Sam who's a loyal warrior in their life. You see, in the kingdom of God, our weakness reveals the strength of God. The church is always outbatched and we're in over our head. It's a common misunderstanding about the Old Testament. I don't know if you knew this, but the Canaanites 
are, are the superior civilization. They're the techno, technologically advanced civilization, not the Hebrews. The Hebrews were mountain hicks like people from over in Tallapoosa and, and Alabama. And, 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 and even in, in our culture, you know, the, the enemies of Christ have more money often more education and, and more influence than we do. So you see, when we depend on our own strength, we're going to fail, always. If not at first, we can get by for a little bit, but eventually we will. But when we trust God and actively work through his mighty strength, we're going to win. Look again in verse 6. Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel slain. You're to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua is going to win this battle for one reason, and that's because of God's mighty work, his mighty hand. Against overwhelming odds, Joshua will win because God is at work revealing his glory and his power. And after the victory, God had, had Joshua burn the chariots and hamstring the horses. Now, they, they could still be good as farm animals, but never again could they be animals for war. Now, that's dumb, right? If you win the technology over, you shouldn't dismantle it. You should keep it and use it. If you capture a drone, you use the drone, right? That's what you should do, but that's not what God wants us to do. It, it wouldn't be better to capture the chariots and train them to be better and stronger warriors because God doesn't want them dependent on technology to fight with, with their battles. You know, we can take iPads loaded with Bible software, and, and I'm preaching from an iPad, but that won't win the battle in India or Africa or anywhere else. Psalm 20 and verse 7 says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's not our cleverness that will win the day, but faithfulness in Christ that always wins. You see, for the kingdom to grow, not only in India, but here and in Mexico where we saw the video this morning, for the kingdom to grow, the hearts of men and women must be changed. And our hearts are first. And we don't have the power to do that. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can do that. And then after our hearts are changed, we're like little children. So we have to be trained. And, 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 and so God does, does the changing. Together we do the training. So this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, what are those weapons? Well, God's weapons are the power of the gospel, the, the power of the cross of Christ revealed through his church, through you and through me in relentless love and, and revealed in truth and fighting for justice for the poor, and through salvation that comes to any home that submits himself to Christ. And you see, humility is our attitude because we know we're not believers because we're more clever than our neighbors. It's because of grace. So humility is, is our attitude as we take every thought captive to the word of God so that all of our life is devoted to the Lord's glory. And the cord that binds all of this together is prayer. 
Lots and lots of prayer because, you see, God uses the foolishness of prayer to, share his, to, to show forth his glory. He already knows what you need before you ask. He has us pray so that we might humble ourselves and depend on him. And as we pray, it's not so much as circumstances are changed, we're changed. You see, the world seeks power. We seek weakness, we pray. The world assigns prestige to those who are successful, while the kingdom gives new life to failures. The world offers positions to the clever, while the gospel takes the foolish things of the world to, to confound the wise. That's why God said to King Zerubbabel in Zechariah 5, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Do you realize how free you are when you finally know the truth and then admit it that God is not impressed with me at all? And, 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 and nor is he impressed with anything that we've accomplished. And that by his grace, I don't have to ever prove how clever I am, that he loves me and, and he wants to know me because that's his nature to love. That's so good. And it's so good to know and admit it. You see, living a life of love in your community takes more training than learning to shoot an M16 in the army or to drive a tank for that matter. Relying on the cross, winning, winning the battle with yourself to promote others first, to, to learn to give generously to the needy, whether it's a huge box of Q-tips or anything else that's needed. To, to learn to make peace with those who've hurt you and to seek reconciliation. To seek first the kingdom over the materialistic blessings in your life. All of that is so hard. And it takes time and training and humility. And so therefore it takes a plan. You have to plan to do it. You see, it doesn't happen by accident. So that's why the second thing I wanted you to see in this passage is, is that Kingdom warfare has proper strategy. Now, now Joshua's camp is in the southern ridge country. The, the northern kings are, are camped near Hazor, it says in our story, in the waters of Merom, and that's up in the mountains. And, and the normal place for the north to fight the south is going to be in the valley of Jezreel, this huge valley that's out in the plains in the middle of Israel. And, and if you know anything about ancient warfare, you'll know that normal warfare out in open country gives the chariots a huge advantage. Foot soldiers cannot beat tanks in the open, and Israel cannot beat chariots in the valley of Jezreel. So just like in the story before this, in the south, with God's intervention, Israel marches north and brings a surprise attack to Jabin's camp up in the mountains. God told them to do this. And therefore, the chariots are useless and, and Israel wins. Beloved, the gospel-centered life is not brainless, nor is it passive. Our philosophy is not to let go and let God. That's not what it means to depend on his might. Our philosophy is to follow Christ and engage in the battle. Have you noticed that Joshua is the aggressor in this entire campaign? God is sovereign, but we are not passive. We're not the audience. 
We're the actors on the kingdom stage, and and he is the producer and the writer and the director of the play. And, And gospel engagement requires some strategic planning and living on our part. Churches must have missional strategies, and this one does. But you see, that's only successful if it's built on the structure of individual families living a strategic life of love and service and generosity and hospitality. You see, without a plan, without thinking your life through, it'll pass by in the blink of an eye. And the unimportant things will get done and the important will be left behind for somebody else to do. And the church, you see, is like a family business. I like to think of it this way. The church is like a family business in which the, older, the oldest brother, who's like the pastor, actually earns his living running the business. But every family member belongs to the business, serves the business while they earn their living outside the business. And all of it's done for the good of the family because everybody shares in the profits. You see, that's what the church is like. It's like a family business. And, and obviously, most of you have jobs outside the church. You also have uh, numerous individual family responsibilities. But you see, the role of the staff and of the elders of the church is not to do the ministry, but to equip and train and prepare you to do the ministry. And then the question is, who benefits, who profits from the leaders equipping and you doing the work? And the answer is, you do. We, we all profit together. In fact, you can't be mature in Christ and a spiritual grown-up any other way. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says that God has gifted the church with leaders in order to prepare God's people for, for works of service. Or, uh, some translations say for ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. That's why many churches fight. is because the leaders aren't equipping and the body's not working. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants And verse 16 says this happens as each part of the body does its work. Now this is God's plan. This is God's strategy for bringing purpose to your life and my life in the midst of a broken world. This is God's plan for the kingdom of God to transform your life, your family's life, and those around you. Now, many Christians, especially in America where we're very busy, many Christians fit the church in around their busy lives, serving each other and doing ministry when it can be squeezed in. And Paul says here, In Ephesians 4, that that's what spiritual babies do. The mature in Christ know that the American dream is just a pipe dream. It doesn't last. It won't satisfy. Uh, Offering fulfillment but stealing your best years, working for things that are temporary instead of working for the glory of God that lasts. And you see in the gospel, he shares his glory with us. It's eternal. What every family needs, therefore, is a plan to make the life of the body of Christ worldwide and locally central to your schedule and integrated then with everything else. We either 
seek each other's good or, or we're out seeking the good of those outside the body so that they'll become part of the family of God. And, and that's how God elevates the name of Christ through us. It's a terrible strategy. It's like hamstringing horses. He's depending on us to get this done. You're dismayed already, right? Yeah, me too. You see, the gospel takes broken and sinful people and then makes a new race of people, a people that are transformed by the cross to experience real life and true love. He gives us purpose in seeking the glory of Christ in all things. And he gives us pleasure in serving others in all parts of life. And then he shows us that what will make our kids happiest is not every educational opportunity or extracurricular opportunity or material gift but what will make them happiest is knowing Christ and learning to serve and love others. That's what lasts, you see, and it'll last in your kid's life as well as yours. In fact, Jesus said that if we'll seek first his kingdom, then all the other stuff that we think we need will come to us as we truly need it. So that takes us to the third thing that I wanted you to see in this passage is that kingdom warfare has faithful servants. Now, the book of Joshua, that's a great book. The book of Joshua is the story of our warrior God conquering the promised land and giving the kingdom to his people. In every way, it is the parallel story of Christ conquering sin and the nations and giving the nations to his people. But, but it's not a story only about God. It's a story of redemption that includes us. We are integrated fully in the plan. So the book of Joshua is also the story of faithfulness of a man who trusts God to keep his word. Look at what made Joshua great. Look at verse 12. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them. That's not what made them great. What made him great is he did it as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded. He followed the word of God faithfully. Look at verse 15. As Yahweh commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that Yahweh commanded Moses. You see, the Lord laid out a very specific plan for taking the promised land, and Joshua followed those commands explicitly. And this book is a monument to Joshua as a faithful servant to the kingdom of God. And so God told him to be strong and courageous because that's what kingdom warfare needs. That's what the gospel requires of its people, to be strong and courageous because we're always battling upstream. And Joshua has been. Conquering the land, you see, was never about the size of the army, nor was it about Joshua's personal fame or self-promotion, nor was it even about about the riches of the plunder. It was always about doing God's will. One time on Wednesday night down in Douglasville, I asked my Wednesday class what they wanted to be remembered for. What do you, what, what do you wish as a lasting legacy? That's what I asked them. You know, President Obama's just won his second term. They say second term presidents are building a legacy because they've accomplished what they can in the first. Now they don't have to win another election so they can be bold to get what they want. And we can see the president doing that. And he's trying to build his legacy. What, what do you want your legacy to be? How, how would you want people to remember you? And, and, and that Wednesday night, there, there, there were various answers. Well, here's mine. 
I want to be remembered like Joshua. I want to be a faithful servant leader. If, if I have a tombstone, and I don't know that anybody will remember me that way, but if they did, I just want them to put he was faithful on it. When, 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 when my, I, I've never had a large church. I've not written any books. I'm not famous. And, and you know, that's okay with me. I can still be faithful in all that I do. When my wife thinks of me, I want her to remember that I've been a faithful husband, loving and providing and protecting her and and working for her holiness and and humbly reconciling whenever I've failed. When I've been a jerk, I I try to remember to bring jerk flowers and actually repent. Right, guys? Jerk flowers, you know what those are, right? I've bought a bunch. And, 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 And when my kids, when my kids think of me, the, the word might not be faithful. Kids don't use that word. But loving and discipling and supporting and correcting and cheerleading. That, that's what I'd like them to remember. And teaching them the gospel. And, and, and here's the funny part. You know, in America, you can be considered a faithful American husband and father and not be faithful to your call, to your Christian call, to seek the kingdom first. Because the idols of the American dream, the idols of the middle class, the idols that you and I are fighting against are safety and security and, and convenience and, and consumerism. We, we fuss. Last night we were coming back from Johnson City and we stopped downtown to get the varsity. Got to do that, right? And then we sat in line for 15 minutes at Krispy Kreme to get hot donuts. And we were fussing about having to wait 15 minutes because, you see, our idol is convenience. Got to have it now. I'm working with pastors who walk all day to get to the training center. It's amazing. But, you see, those are not the goals of the kingdom. Those are the goals of the American dream. And you can pursue those idols and be a faithful American husband and father or wife and mother, never missing a single ball game or horse show or weekly date with your spouse, all while creating enough wealth to provide everything we need. I can do all that, provide for my family well, and never serve the poor, never give a, bit, a large amount to, to faith promise, Never give extra to missions at all. Never share the gospel with my neighbor. Never disciple anyone. Never love anyone else other than my family. And I will be considered an American success. But not faithful to the kingdom. Not by a long shot. Which means I I have to redefine faithfulness for myself, for God and my family, so that I will pursue Joshua's dream instead of the American dream. And so now we're getting to the heart of this story. And I want you to see clearly that this story is not mainly calling for us to be better warriors with better weapons and better strategy. That's how the church often responds. That's not what this story is about. This story is calling us to deepen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that the promises of God are true and that he keeps his word no matter what. And that when he promises to give us a good life that lasts 
into eternity by following him instead of the ways of the world, that it's true. When he tells us that being generous stores up treasure in heaven, that we'll believe that his word is true. You see, Joshua's dream was not the promised land. His dream was the glory of God fulfilled in his life for the sake of God's people. And just as Joshua possessed all the land, you see the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, has already possessed the whole kingdom on our behalf. It's his death and resurrection, you see, that sets us free from slavery to ourselves to live for his kingdom instead of building our own and to enjoy the pleasure of his relationship with him instead of with our own ego as a people who love. Now, do you see that? You see, that's what this story is about. Otherwise, it's just one more guilt trip. I'm just the visiting missionary who comes in and tells you to do more. You're not doing enough. Be like Joshua. No, the gospel says, believe like Joshua. Because the unusual power that's outside of this battleground comes from the Lord himself. And only faith in Christ... Only keeping Christ front and center in your thinking and in your heart and your devotion will order your life and make you at all faithful. Gritting your teeth will not get it done. And so now, now that we realize that this story is about faith in Christ, now we can answer the question that the, the text begs. And that is, how do I live in this culture right here in Kennesaw and, and be kingdom-minded? And I'll tell you that the way you do that is go to those ball games faithfully. I even coached when my sons were little. But always with the other kids and the other families intentionally in mind. It was always intentional. It was for their benefit more than for my own families. You see, Sherry and I used to pray in the baseball offseason. We were in Florida at the time. The draft was in January. And so we would start praying in the fall. In September, when school went back into session, we would begin to pray for the families that we would pick up in the draft that coming year. And, and we would pray that God would bring us those who, who needed and were ready for gospel love from us, who, who were ready to be ministered to and hear the gospel and, and to have that shared with them th- through the demonstration of love for their kids. And we would also be, pray that they would, at the same time, be quality ball players so that we could win. Really, that's what we prayed. And we would finish first or second every year, and we'd lead some people to Christ. God answers prayer. Those were the prayers we answered. And, and then we, we did it, in, in, in those were the prayers we asked. And, and then we did it in soccer when that time came with our daughters. Doing little things like, you know, there's so many single moms. We would pick up their kids for practice because otherwise they, their mom couldn't get them to practice. And that's not valiant ministry. It's little things, keeping care of the details and, and, and inviting all of them over to our home regularly and our life. And eventually we would invite them to our Savior after they learned to trust us. So I'll, you can do the same thing. That, that's not special ministry. That's, that you can do. So, so invite the team. 
Invite the, the chess club, if that's what your kids are doing. Uh, if you're doing horses, invite them. Whatever it is that your kids are doing, invite them to be a part of your life and pray very intentionally for the wisdom to have follow-on conversations or, or service to those who are in need or, or even to study the book of John together and ask God to show you who to convenient, inconveniently and intentionally love with your time, integrate your life. Make everything that you're doing about the kingdom. You don't have to quit doing stuff you enjoy, but integrate and make it about the kingdom. And, and then on top of that, we taught our kids to love the poor with us and the hurting. And well, if we painted the rescue mission, we took them with them. I took my teenagers to Cherokee when they were that age. So take Sign up today and go to Cherokee and take your teenagers. Take a week of vacation and go to Cherokee. Your life will be changed and so will your kids. We, we painted the rescue mission. I can remember Matt at four years old. He was painting down here and it was terrible. And so I was right behind him just cleaning it up with paint wherever he painted. And he had the time of his life that day. And we got paint everywhere, but it was all right. And, and, and we took them to visit friends in the hospital. So if you have sick friends, take your kids with you to visit if they're allowed in the hospital. And, and for years, we took bread to poor people. You know, Publix, at least in Florida, when we were doing that, they would give away their bread. And we would go on Friday nights and get free bread because they don't mark it down. And then the next day, we would take it to the poor people we knew. And we did that every week, and we took our kids with us. Now, see, that was serious, serious quality family time. And you can do that too. It's not a big deal. And, and now our kids are grown. And so Sherry and I are having to rework our philosophy of ministry and how we're going to reach out with our family. And so this summer we're going to rejoin the, the neighborhood pool so that we can meet our neighbors in a better fashion. And we're asking God for new friends in order to bless and to share the gospel with. And we've been bowling on Tuesday nights. We're close enough to the Alabama line that we can bowl on on. Right? On Tuesday nights, and you can drink a beer and have a good time and bowl, and you can meet new people. Really? It's pretty fun. It's cheap on Tuesdays in Douglasville. I don't know where your bowling alley is. You see, the bad news is, the bad, there's bad news in this text. The bad news is, is that if you don't intentionally seek the kingdom of God first, then you will habitually pursue the idols of the culture instead. It's one or the other. Oh, oh you, you may still tithe, and, and you'll be here at your local church, and you'll do some occasional service, but your legacy will never be Joshua's, who left nothing undone of all that God had commanded. And, and you'll find that you're unconsciously training your children to live the same careless life as they go off to college to pursue the American dream. You'll be restless because those idols never satisfy. And the bad news is, is that if you reject the kingdom altogether, and some of you may be thinking this through today, if you reject the kingdom altogether like the Canaanite kings in our story and either run from God or ignore him or fight him, then you'll be lost altogether. But there is good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sins and he rose from the dead to give us new life that is satisfying and complete and on purpose. He even forgives the sin of living a careless life in his name. Isn't that good? And if you will turn from your dreams 
and put your faith completely in Christ's dreams, trusting only in him, then he'll give you eternal life that's not only for eternity, but it's for now, and it's full of meaning now. And so I invite you to trust in him and to renew your trust in him today. Now, I want you to know that Sherry and I are not different from you. We have the same hurdles, the same struggles, probably the same idols, and, and our flesh is trying to figure out how to be safe and convenient and go to Cherokee instead of India. I'd rather go to Cherokee and still serve God. I will tell you this, though. We've been praying regularly for 30 years that the Lord would open our eyes and open our hearts so that we might see our own idols and to see the needs of others and to seek first the kingdom in all things and train our children and now our grandchildren to, to do just the same. And we've prayed that prayer regularly, not because we're spiritual, but because we're so fleshly, but because it's not in us to be like that. And, and, and you know what? The Lord has answered that prayer in abundance and he will answer it for you as well. And then, and then we'll be able to say together with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you once again for your word. It delights us to see you at work in the lives of your people. It gives us courage to know that if you'll work in Joshua, you might work in us as well. And Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who's completely possessed the whole kingdom. And, and your word says that if you'll give us your son, will you not freely with him give us all things in Christ? And so that's what our prayer is, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the needs of the world and to the needs of this community and the needs in our own family to know and to serve the living God and to faithfully put our trust in Christ who never forsakes us or leaves us. Thank you for that, Father. Would you do that in us today? We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.